0: I wanted to take just a moment this morning and review, if we could, that's better, sorry it's so distracting, it's talking, 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 gosh, uh, and I wanted to review not so much just uh, the, the book as just the author, reminder that First uh, John was written by John the Apostle, Also wrote 2 John and 3 John and the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation. Prolific little guy that he was. John and his brother James were among the first called by Jesus to come and join him in his ministry. Uh, And partially because of that, partially just I suppose personalities, they became very close. John and James were fishermen. The sons of Zebedee, along with their father, they worked on their dad's fishing boat. I don't know, honestly, I don't know what first century commercial fishermen were like, right? Because I wasn't there. I'm old, but not that old. But I always picture, like, the deadliest catch guys. You know what I mean? They're, they're kind of crusty and rusty. They're, they're missing teeth, missing digits, you know, haven't shaved in a while, just pretty, they're pretty tough guys. They're tough guys, and so again, I don't know if that's the case or not. But that profile seems to fit John and James because uh, in their in the course of their ministry, Jesus had a nickname for them. He called them the Sons of Thunder. Which I was thinking about that. I go, well, that's like a cool nickname. If you're going to have a nickname, you might as well have a cool one. They could have been like the Pufter Boys or something, but that wouldn't be that cool. But Sons of Thunder is kind of cool. The reason he called them that is because they were pretty intense guys. If they would go to a visit a village or a town, and the people there weren't as gracious or welcoming as maybe they thought they should be, James and John would want to just call down fire and burn them. Come on, Jesus, let's smoke these suckers. Fortunately, Jesus was a little more discerning and didn't play into that. But... Uh, they were intense guys. They really were. At the uh, at the Last Supper, really hours before Jesus is crucified, it's been a long road they've been on. John is uh, seated next to Jesus. They uh, you know they sat on the floor and kind of they said they reclined, sort of just kicked back and when Jesus began to talk about. What was going to happen to him. It says John leaned back. And he put his head. On Jesus' chest. And the. uh, The son of thunder became the chief cuddler. Something had happened. Later in his life. John lived into his 90's. And later in his life. He was not known by the nickname son of thunder anymore he was had another nickname he was known in the latter part of his ministry just as John the beloved we talked about that word last week and what it means divinely loved one he was the apostle of love it's not in scripture but tradition has it i've read different sources that say that when john was near the end of his life he would still preach people would gather together to hear him and he was pretty weak and feeble physically and so a couple guys would have to help him out, you know, and they would walk him out onto the front in front of the congregation, prop him up, and he would look at the crowd, and he would just say, love one another. And then they'd take him and they'd walk him back. And that's sort of uh, how John's life ended. Mr. Mr. Intensity became Mr. Tender. So what happened? Jesus happened. Jesus happened. In the three years that John spent with Jesus, his life was transformed. And he was changed from this fire-breathing kind of tough guy, fisherman, into a tender-hearted lover of men. John the Beloved. Jo- John was the longest living of the disciples. He watched Jesus died on the cross. The other disciples were afraid and they scattered and they hid, but we see John at the foot of the cross. And he looks up and he sees his friend, he sees his Savior. And Jesus looks down at him and he, his mother's there and he looks at John. He says, John, I want you to take care of her. After that, John watched every one of the other disciples die. Again, tradition tells us that his brother James was the first one to be martyred. But over a period of time, one by one, John watched them all die for their faith. And I want to ask you, you think that would leave an impression on you? All your friends, all the guys you walked with, all that happened in that ministry with Jesus, and now they're all gone, and he's the only one left. Reading through 1 John, we've mentioned a couple times that he's got this message, and he repeats it over and over and over again. He talks about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. Why does he repeat that so many times? Because it's all he's got. Our our title this morning is God is Love. It's pretty simple. I want to pray, and then we'll just kind of look at our text today in chapter 4. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning just to understand the intensity uh, of the love of God that John felt, and and that that would be transferred into our lives today, that we would understand it as it relates to us this day, this hour, in this place, in our circumstances. In your name we pray, amen. I'm going to read chapter 4, I think uh, beginning at about verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, beloved. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He's given us the Spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know that they rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. That's a powerful verse. We'll come back. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must love also their brother and sister. So again, John is writing to refute some folks who were saying a number of things, but chief among those things was that Jesus could not have been both God and a person, that those two things don't connect. He was was God, but what we saw in the person wasn't really him. It was something else. He wasn't human. John says, not so much. He goes, look, I, I saw him. I touched him. I walked with him. I leaned my head back onto his chest and I felt his heartbeat. I heard him breathe and he was fully human. He was a person. Theologian Karl Barth says, thus we have no universal deity capable of being reached conceptually but this concrete deity real and recognizable in the descent the coming to earth. Grounded in and peculiar to the existence of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a person. Jesus uh, understood suffering, and as I said before, because of his relationship with Jesus, John too understood suffering. He saw Jesus die. He saw his friends die. And he realized the world is full of pain. Uh, Sometimes, you know... I I just look at the world around us, and I mean, again, you know, you can say, well, I don't want to watch the news because it's all bad news, whatever. If you're awake, you realize the world is full of pain. It's overwhelming to me. There are times when I just am overwhelmed at the pain of human suffering, the the, the magnitude of human suffering, the things on individual levels, corporate levels, national levels, just the, the pain that people go through. There is a uh, a theological perspective out there. There's a a school of thought that says that we don't really need to acknowledge suffering or embrace suffering, that it's not a part of who we are in Christ, that we're victorious in Christ. And so, uh, suffering isn't really a part of who we are, and we shouldn't acknowledge it. For me, I would say this. If you come and tell me Jesus loves me but he doesn't understand my pain, that doesn't mean anything to me. If he suffered and he lives, if, if if he reconciled those two things, if he died and he rose, that means that I can live and that means that I have hope. John says that matters. That matters. This is a great little book. I just started it. My Bright Abyss. This guy is a uh, poet. He's a Christian. He's received a diagnosis of uh, incurable cancer. And this book is about his journey. He says, if Christianity is going to mean anything at all for us now, then the, hum- the humanity of God cannot be a half measure. He can't float over the chaos of pain and particles in which we're mired and we can't think of him gliding among our ancestors like some shiny, sinless superhero. No. God has given over to matter to the ultimate uncertainty principle. What John is asking us really here is, do you know how much God loves you? He loves you so much He came and He experienced all of the stress and anxiety, all of the pain and suffering, all of the humiliation that you experienced. And He came out the other side. And that's the hope that we have in Him. That's how much He loved us. He left His place with God in heaven and came here to go through what you go through. That's what love is. And nothing less. How do we define the love of God in our lives? There's a few things. First of all, it's communal, not individual. You know, this passage over and over, he says, us, we, us, we. But that's consistent with Scripture all through the New Testament, all through the Bible. There's no I in love. Love demands an object. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Love just isn't isn't this sort of thing out there. It's a real life thing that's directed and connected to something else. It's relational. It's not individual. The, pro- the thing I get frustrated by today, we see uh, people in positions of power who take things that aren't theirs in the name of love. And they touch things that aren't theirs to touch. And they grab things that aren't theirs to grab, if you know what I mean. God's love isn't about that. God's love is about giving. It's sacrificial. It's not what I take. It's what I give. It's what God gave to us. And our task as followers of Christ is to learn to love one another. And it's incarnational. It's not theoretic. I don't know about you. and I think of that word incarnational, I think of chili con carne. It's chili with meat. Chili no carne is just beans. Nobody likes that. Seriously. Go to a restaurant, chili, no carne. No. I want the meat. There's flesh. There's there's some skin on it. Skin in the game. Theoretic love is nice. You know why? It's clean. It's nice and easy. It's tidy. It's just all... It's all tidy. Incarnational love is a mess. It really is. Jesus walked into the mess. But here's the deal. The fact that he walked into the mess, that's why he can reach anyone. No one is too far off. Right? And and here, let's be honest about it, okay? When we say no one is too far away, do you know what we mean? We mean no one is too screwed up. That's what we mean. No one is too screwed up. We say too far off because it's nice. But what we mean is nobody has jacked their life up so bad that God can't reach them. And it amazes me sometimes how people can jack their lives up. I've said before, it's a good thing I'm not God. Because sometimes I see that, I go, well, that's another fine mess you've created. Nimrod. And that would sort of be the end of it. Bye-bye. Jesus goes, no, I, that's not my response in this situation. My response is, I'm going to keep pressing in, and I'm going to keep loving that person regardless of how much mess they've made of themselves. I, Jesus says, I get it. I understand. I know what you've been through. I, 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 just, this, I think this is the word of the Lord for you today. When was the last time you heard me say that? Jesus understands your pain. Jesus understands your pain. God's love is perfect. It's not limited. And um, the word perfect in Greek is teleos. It's like a telescope. And so you've ever looked through a telescope, you know that things that are far away and you can't see them very well, they become close. And what it really means is it's love. In its fullest expression. When John says his love is perfected, he means it's brought close to us and it's in its fullest expression. It's the best it can possibly be and it has no limitations. And this is the thing. We have limitations. Okay? We all have limits. How many times have you said, I can only be so good. I can only be so strong. I can only be so faithful. I can only be so smart. I can only be so pretty. I can only be so skinny. I can only be this whatever. And Jesus says, I overlook your limitations and your boundaries and I'm going to cross those boundaries. I'm going to go beyond those limits and I'm going to love you in a perfect way regardless. That's what he says. And the love of God is bold, not afraid. There's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Other people are saying, again, you know, Jesus must not have been who we thought he was. It's interesting, even the passage this morning for communion, and, you know, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they're walking down that road, and they go, well, we had thought this is who he was, but it didn't work out. But then, of course, their eyes were open, but other people's eyes weren't open. And they were still saying that he wasn't who we thought he was. We thought he was going to be this great Savior, and now he's not. John says, no, 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 you don't get it. I was there. I was there. I was at the cross. I was the one. He said, Here, take care of my mom for me. He's real. He's everything we thought he was. And then I think John probably took a break and said, Wait a minute. No, he's not everything we thought he was. He's better than that. He's better than everything that we thought he was. And we don't have to be afraid. It's amazing to me. Christians who live in fear today. Oh, my God. They're going to take over. They're going to. It's just. And you know what pisses me off? Christians who promote fear. Just call us and buy this $89 package, and your life will be safe. Selling fear. I'd say turn off the TV and read the Bible the book of Genesis, God told Abraham, don't be afraid. All through the books of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, over and over and over again, God says to the children of Israel, don't be afraid. Joshua comes up against a big army, and what does God say to him? Don't be afraid. Samuel's trembling, and God says, don't be afraid. prophet Isaiah calls out to the people of God. He says, don't be afraid. Zechariah. Zechariah doesn't understand what's happening and angel of the Lord speaks to me and says, "Zechariah, don't be afraid. Joseph is confused because his fiancée is pregnant. And God says, don't be afraid. Mary is a little confused because she's pregnant. And God says, don't be afraid. How many times do we have to read that to get it? I find it fitting that Our author today, the Apostle John, closes out Scripture for us. Like I said, he's in his 90s. All of his friends have died. He's alone on the island of Patmos. And the Lord appears to him. And he sees Jesus in all his glory. And it's a little overwhelming and it says, "He fell like a dead man before him." And uh, Jesus reaches out his hand and he puts it on his shoulder, he says, "John, beloved, don't be afraid. The love of God is transformative. it's not static. We mentioned it this morning. God took John, this rough and tough fisherman, and He turned him into this tender-hearted lover of men. I mentioned it as we read it earlier, but this is, I think, a profound verse that I would encourage you, even challenge you to meditate on a little bit. This is how love is made complete among us, that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Do you notice that He doesn't say, when you go to heaven, you'll be like Jesus? When you die and go to heaven, you'll be like Jesus. No. In this world today, right now, in this life, you will be like Jesus. As He is, so are we. We can be like Him. We, we can be vessels of that love that we've been talking about. In this world, we can be like Him. You guys want to come up? Jesus reached out and... Uh, hold us, you and me, up out of the yuckiness of life and right into the kingdom of God. And we have the opportunity to walk in the yuckiness of life or to walk in the kingdom of God. His love is transformative, and what that means is it changes everything it touches. All we have to do is be who we are beloved, just be who you are, be loved by God, and I'll tell you, when you do that, I said earlier it's messy, but part of that's good, because then it just sort of splashes out on everybody else, when you're filled with the love of God, it just splashes out, it'll it'll touch the hearts and lives of people around you, one last quote today, I love this, John Stott is cool. Stott's commentary on First John is off the charts, but in his another book he wrote "The Cross of Christ." He says, "God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us." Amen.